I'm not sure, but I might go through that winter again to get this summer. You know? This is the most tan I've been outside of South Carolina. Uh, my kids are in Little League, and there were a few like true Alaskans on the Little League field this week, and I was wearing jeans and a t-shirt, and they said, how are you, ex- how are you dealing with this heat in that much clothes? And I thought, I mean, in South Carolina, this is winter weather, you know? But I am genuinely concerned from some of you true Alaskans. You, you are about to like burst into flames like Dracula, you know? It's not good. Uh, <clears throat> today's a, a, a pretty special day, um, pretty special passage, and it's special because uh, as we've taught through these uh, series in Ruth and Judges, we have actually referenced 1 Samuel chapter 8 multiple times. It's actually all the way back in December, and probably before that, we told you that Israel is soon going to make a decision that will alter the way that the, that the Lord interacts with them on a massive national scale. And that day is today. So, it's going to be a fun day, you know. Um, Let me ask you a few questions. This is the interactive portion of the sermon. And so, if you could test out your right arm. Some of y'all's isn't working. How many of you would say that our world needs help? If you didn't raise your arm, you're not paying attention. Either, either way. Uh, how many of you would say that our world needs help on a drastic, massive scale? Okay, this is going to be a little bit harder. How many of you would say that this group of people in this room could collectively come together with one solution and all agree on it? Okay, there's a few optimists in here. It's actually my goal today. It's a pretty lofty goal. For me uh, to lead us into a place of where we can firmly land, this is the solution to the world's problems. Uh, And so it's my my firm belief uh, and my goal today to emphasize that God's people need to foremost and first be uh, about God's kingdom, about God's will, about his purposes. And the, uh, how we go about that is by loving people, well, first loving God, loving people, and making disciples. And I believe, and I think Scripture attests to this, that, that to the degree that which we commit our lives to God's work, to God's purposes, we will actually make a difference in the world around us, make real lasting changes in our families, in our marriages, in our community, in our nations. Does that sound? That sounds like epic let's go let's go for that right we're all in on that so what we're going to do today is i'm going to look at first samuel chapters 8 through 10 and then we're going to we're going to take a moment and we're going to look at four mistakes that israel made on their way to becoming a kingdom that we need to avoid okay 
So the story actually begins like this with, with Samuel. It starts out with uh, chapter 7. The end, of, the end of chapter 7 says that Samuel, uh, year after year, goes on a circuit around Israel, and he judges all of Israel, which is his job. He goes to Bethel and Gilgal and then Mizpah, and he operates as a judge in all these places. And then he returns home to Ramah, and he continues to be a judge in this place. And then chapter 8 starts. Chapter 8 starts, and he says he's very old. It's time for Samuel to retire, and so he appoints his sons to be judges, and his sons began to judge in Beersheba. And after a while, the elders of Israel look at, look at this job that uh, Joel and Abijah, Samuel's sons, are doing, and they say, this is, this is off. And so they, they gather together, and they go to Samuel, and they tell Samuel, we need a new plan. Your sons are actually taking bribes and perverting justice in their job as judges over Israel. And so what we want you to do is to appoint a king over our nation so that we will be like the nations that are around us, like all the other nations. We'd like to be like them. And Samuel, hearing these words, says, that's, that's not good. I, I don't know that I can get behind that plan. It seems like it's off. And so being the man that he is of godly character, he prays to the Lord and says, do you hear what these people have said? They're asking for a king. First Samuel chapter 8, 7 and 8 says this, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them according to all the deeds that they have done from the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. God says, obey their voice and solemnly warn them that this is going to go poor for you if you make this decision. And so Samuel goes back to the elders and he makes this this statement in, in chapters 8, verses 11 through 16. He, he details out what the rights of the king will be. Samuel goes to them and says, if you choose this, the king will, it's a pattern throughout this text, the king will do this. And what the king will do is he will take from you. He will take your sons and make them warriors. He will take your sons and make them charioteers. Send them off to war. He will also take your sons to be blacksmiths to make weapons of war. He will take your daughters to be servants as cooks and bakers and perfumers. Then he's going to take your land. Then he's going to take your food. And in the end, you will be slaves of the king. What's interesting about this is that what the elders are asking for is exactly the same as Israel asked for in the wilderness. 
Exodus 14, 11 and Numbers 21, 5 say, why have we come out of Egypt into this barren land? Was there not enough graves in Egypt to bury us there? You see, what Israel's doing in this moment is exactly what they wanted to do in the wilderness. Go back to Egypt to become slaves again. They're turning themselves, this nation, with a God king back into Egypt. They're turning the promised land into a land of slavery. Samuel tells them, this is what God has said. When you choose this king and he appoints one over you, you will cry out for help. And God will not listen to you. He will not listen. And the elders say in response to Samuel's warning, verse 19 through 20, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And chapter 9 begins, and Saul is introduced as he search for, searches for donkeys. And then Saul meets Samuel. In chapter 10, Samuel anoints Saul to be king at the request of the Lord. And then Samuel gathers all of the elders, and he casts lot, casts lots for the king. This is God's sovereignty at play. He rolls the dice. Saul's tribe is chosen. Rolls the dice again. Saul's family is chosen. Rolls the dice again. Saul is chosen. And he comes up and he says, this is your king. And God offers his people, the tribes of Israel, one last warning. This is what's going to happen. And Samuel said, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. So Saul departs this place as the future king. And what's interesting is, as this chapter ends, it says that Saul goes home, everyone goes home, and there's a group of men of valor who attach themselves to Saul. This is the way forward. This is what we're going to do. And then there's also another group who splits off. The text actually says they're worthless men who despised Saul, saying, who's this guy to save us? Now, does that not sound like a modern-day story of any given nation? Except this story is 3,000 years old. It's written in 900 BC. 3,000 years old. I don't, have, I don't have time to unpack this statement, but it is my firm belief that, that the course of humanity is on this uh, recurring loop where 
men, nations, try to make the world a better place on their own and then fail to do so. And then another group picks up something and keeps on kicking the stone down the street with no real outcomes. So how do we set ourselves apart from that narrative, from that history that continues to play itself out time and time again? Let's look at four of their mistakes. Four of their mistakes on the way to finding and getting a king. First one is this. The Israel and its leaders are stuck in a rut. Chapter 17 tells you that Samuel is continuously moving around Israel doing one thing, judging Israel. He's doing what he knows best to do. He's going out and deciding cases, saying this is the way that this should go, right? But the one thing that they fail to do, not just Samuel, but also Eli, is that they fail to raise up a leader to take their place. Samuel is old and in need of retirement, and he looks around and says, I'll just put my sons in this place, and they'll, they'll do all right. This is, this is so much a part of our culture is we do it until we can't anymore, and then we look around and it's like, let's just slap a Band-Aid on it, and you, you figure it out. We don't want to give up control. We want to keep it, right? Let me do this for as long as I can, but the, because the only one that's going to be able to do this rightly is me. <clears throat> the 1700s, uh, God started a revival out of Oxford, England. Started at a holy club at the college. There were two prominent Christians that came out of this holy movement, this revival. The first was George Whitfield. George Whitfield is not a household name these days. He, uh, he was known for, as the first transatlantic revivalist. It's a pretty, pretty big star on his name, right? That's a big deal. He traveled the Atlantic 13 times, preaching the gospel in new colonies and then returning back to England and preaching there. And he was known for uh, amassing crowds of up to 1,200 people, preaching the gospel passionately, emphatically, and getting emotional responses from the crowds to follow Jesus. And his co-worker, who also traveled the Atlantic, goes by the name of John Wesley, who you undoubtedly know as the founder of the Methodist Church. What set George Whitfield and John Wesley apart is their giftings. John Wesley is a passionate preacher. I'm sorry, George Whitfield is a passionate preacher. John Wesley is also a preacher, but he also has organizational gifts. 
And what he did in the colonies was create small house churches of people and give them roles to fulfill, which would eventually spawn out and create the Methodist church, which is, I mean, Methodist church is right over there, still in existence, right? One was for a time, and one shaped a nation moving forward. It's what I love about our church's example, is that this isn't a one-man show. This is actually many of you who lead in various capacities, not just here on Sunday morning, but in serving our entire community, right? It's a, it's a process of raising up leaders, of seeing what your giftings are and training you and setting you up for success. And I absolutely love that. But this story, uh, this failure to raise up a leader reminds me of the parable of the talents. One guy got five, the other got two, and the last one got one talent. And he just holds on to that one talent thinking, I'll just turn this back in to the Lord. And the Lord's response to that is, what are you doing? I'm going to take your talent from you and give it to someone who is going to multiply the work, to multiply the investment in others. So this is what I want you to remember about being stuck in a rut. Is that when we solely focus on what we can accomplish— Instead of listening to God's leading, we limit what God wants to do in us and in others. Can't be the way forward. We must make an investment in other people. Number two is that Samuel's sons are devoted to debauchery. The text says that they pervert justice and they take bribes. They're actually no different than Eli's children who took bribes and perverted justice and slept with who knows. And the elders look on these current leaders and they toss up their hands and say, we got to just do something different. Let's just depart from the plan. Let's go a different way. Let's, let's take them down as judges and raise up a king. And what, what Samuel seems to do and the elders seem to do is that they, they fail to discipline or train these men to show them how the things are supposed to operate. In, uh, in third grade, there was... Um, it was a cart that came down the hall, and it was full of goodies, right? Full of erasers and pencils and, you know, the, the really colorful kind that you could buy, the ones that were really good for pencil fighting, you know? Um, and you would chew the top of it and make it into an axe. Um, <clears throat> and so a friend of mine actually bought an eraser, and it was a really cool animal, I don't remember what animal it was, it was a yellow eraser. And me and my third grade self said, I, I want that. So I waited until lunch, was the last one out of the room, went up and took it and hid it in my desk. I know as a pastor, you're not supposed to say you stole, but I did. 
And the teacher got, no, got word of this stealing and she found it at my desk. It's not that complicated, you know, look in there. Uh, then she called my dad and it was a Friday. I'll never forget this, it was a Friday. When we were going to Charleston to visit my aunt, it's a beautiful place. Um, and my dad said, as we were packing up, he said, son, you can't steal things. And uh, you're gonna get a spanking. Not today, not tomorrow, but Sunday when we get home. And my dad had told me like how psychologically my grandparents had disciplined him, you know, like he would, he would have to go out and, and pick a, a, a switch. And if the switch wasn't green enough, then he'd have to go get another one, you know, because the green ones hurt worse. <clears throat> and I thought, I didn't understand what was happening, but I knew in that moment, I was like, Dad, I, I just want the spanking now. Please, please don't make me wait. I, I just get it over with. And so we drove to Charleston, three, three hours away, and he tucked me in the night and smiled and said, two more days. <laughs> what kind of evil is this? Saturday night rolled around and he tucked me in. Please, Dad, please don't make me wait. Can we just get it over with? No. You know what happens every time the temptation comes to take something that isn't mine? I think about laying in bed at night and my dad's smiling at me. It's coming tomorrow, son. Samuel didn't train him. The elders just say, let's pick a different way. Paul sets a different example. Actually, all of the Old Testament sets a different example. Deuteronomy 4, 9 says, Only be on your guard and diligent watch over yourselves so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen and so that they do not slip from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and your grandchildren. Train them up in the way that they should go. Paul says to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5 says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and from a good conscience and a sincere faith. See, my job is to, is to come alongside of other people as a Christian, not as a pastor, Everyone in this room comes alongside other people and says, this is the way that you can experience walking with God. This is what happens when you put leaders in charge who you've not trained. Leaders who are given authority without submission to God lead without him. This is, this is so much of the church um, and was my own experiences. This is the way that your life should, should look. This is the rules that you should follow, right? But I have no empowerment to follow the rules. I need to be introduced to the one who helps me follow those rules. When we take God's word and we make it about a moral code, instead of training, instead of a training ground for walking with him, we end up with children who want nothing to do with him, who choose their own way 
who choose what they think is good, like taking bribes, perverting justice. The third thing that Israel does is they search for a new hope. The elders look on Samuel's children and say, we can't go there again. We actually have already experienced this with Eli's children, and the outcome of that is that God's glory left Israel and left us enslaved to the Philistines. How can we now usurp that for our future nation, for our kids? How do we turn away from going towards that path? The solution that they offer is to be like all the other nations. To have a king. Genesis twenty two eighteen, God speaking to Abraham says, And through your offspring, all nations on, on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Israel is supposed to be operating in the reverse action. Israel is supposed to be spreading out and blessing everyone else. The blessing is supposed to come from them, not the other way around. And yet right now, El, the Israel, Israel's elders are choosing just to be like the nations around them. This is, uh, this is common in many arguments that you see today. I have to be kind of careful with how I progress through this next. So give me a little grace. But if you're at all on Facebook or social media, you will quickly understand that this is prevalent throughout our culture. Any argument that is made starts out with, here's the problem, this is why the problem is so bad, and then here's the solution. Here's the solution. So um, there's been some tragic events happening in our society. Uvalde, right? And it gives me pause to see everybody just launch out these solutions to the problem, right? To this complicated issue. And I'm not using this time to make a statement about that, but I want you to see the faulty argument, okay? So in regards to gun laws, they say guns have been around for hundreds of years, uh, and yet we've only had school shootings for this much time. So there's, there's something there that's missing. It's not the gun laws. It's something else. And so the argument goes like this. This is actually quoted from a post. It says, uh, want to fix the horror of mass shootings? Fix the things that have changed for the worse in the last 50 years. Sounds like it could be not bad. Change family values, prayer from schools, 10 commandments from courthouses, spankings, kids, kids morals. Is the problem with that is that none of those are just Jesus. None of those are explicitly Jesus. You realize you can, you can use the Ten Commandments without actually knowing God more, right? You can change family values in a direction and still not know God. You can discipline your kids and still not do it in a godly way. 
So we can change all of those things. And maybe some of them are good. But if they don't include introducing people to Christ, what are we, what are we doing? If our hope, the solution to this mess is not firmly planted on Christ and Christ alone, then we got something off, church. Number four. Solutions of the world equate to rejecting God. I realize that's a that's like a, a big statement. And we don't we don't often want to go that far, right? First Samuel eight, seven through eight. They have rejected me from being king over them according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. True Christianity isn't about creating a solution. It's about knowing the solution, who is a person, who is Christ, who is the one who molds and shapes us through the Spirit indwelling Him, indwelling us. Jeremiah 10, 2-3 says, Thus says the Lord, Do not learn the way of the nations, and do not be terrified by the signs of heavens. Although the nations are terrified by them, for the customs of the people are delusion. The way of the world is leading you away from God. But there is one who is called the way, the truth, and the life. And he's the one we're supposed to follow. See, we're not, we're not making a solution. We're introducing them to one. It's not Jesus and something. It's not Jesus and a king. It's not Jesus and a president. It's not Jesus and anything. It's not Jesus in any solution. It's Jesus having his way in me and in us. When you walk in the door, church, every Sunday morning, you have the opportunity to pick up one of these to take notes on. The very top of that, it says our mission statement says, love God, love people, and make disciples. That's what Church on the Rock is all about, is equipping you to do exactly those three things. And so if, if we proclaim to love God and love people, we must be about what God is doing. can't be about us partnering with worldly solutions. If you really want to make a difference in the world around you, get a disciple.
And I, hear me, I'm not making a negative statement about voting, about being, being in the world, right? We're just not supposed to be part of it. We can influence the world, but it's not supposed to influence us. This is what I am saying, is that we need a way to make an eternal difference in our world, in our community, in our families. And there's only one way to do that, through introducing them to the way, the truth, and the life, to Jesus himself, teaching others how to have an abiding life in him. So what's God doing? Well, he gave us a commission, the end of his life on earth. He says in Matthew 28, 18 18 through 20, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. There is no nation, there is no government, there is no seat on earth or in heaven that is higher than his. He's the one. And because he has that authority, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is the plan. As absurd as it may sound, this is the plan is for us to go out and influence other individuals to show them the love of Christ, to show them what God has done in us. So go make disciples. Here's the problem. There's probably one of two thoughts that many of you just had. Who am I to make a disciple? Kind of be honest with you. This isn't about you. It's about Christ in you. And if Christ lives in you, then he wants to show himself off through you. You are an image bearer. The second one is this. Matt, that seems like a real slow game. You, you want me to go out and make disciples? I, we need something like quick. This world's in a bad place, remember? Drastic action needed now. This place is burning, right? This is not about the outcome. This is about our obedience to his commission in our lives and our being committed to what he's called us to, which so clearly is making disciples and telling others about him. Don't hesitate. The joy is right in front of you to see God work through you and to see the life of someone in your community and your family changed forever. It's nothing better. Nothing. Would you guys pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your word, for what you have done in our lives. God, I ask that that you would uh, embolden us and encourage us to to move in our communities, to speak life into other people, God, to draw them in uh, in relationship, to disciple them, and to 
to help us introduce them to you, Father. I pray that you would open our eyes, each person in here, to, uh, to someone that, that might disciple them, uh, to give them a, uh, a real-life experience of what it's like to be discipled, and at the same time, God, to, to partner with you in your mission to change lives in our community, to set people free, to make real lasting change in this world for your glory and for your honor. May it be in Jesus' name we pray. encouragement to you today. Be proactive about God's kingdom and about his will. Find a disciple, find a disciple maker, and go after it. It's as easy as setting a schedule on your calendar, inviting someone to coffee or dessert at night, and telling them, this is who Jesus is and what he's done for me. Just go after it. It's going to stretch your faith and theirs all around good. We don't officially end till 1230, so if you want to stick around and help tear down, we'd love that. Spend some time with you. Uh, if you need help with food, uh, we would be glad to offer you some assistance to that. Please come see one of our team members or the info table. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Be blessed. God bless you. Have a great Sunday.